Hello and welcome to this audio program by the World Economic Forum. My name is Mike Hanley and today we're going to be talking about robots. Not just robots, but the way that robots and technology is beginning to integrate with humanity and changing the way that we live our lives. Today I have with me David Gleicher, who is uh, what we would call the science editor here at the World Economic Forum. He is with the global programming team and responsible for integrating science and technology related subjects into our programs. And later on this program, we've got some interviews with actual scientists and technologists who have developed different kinds of robots and different kinds of technologies that integrate with people. David. Hello. Hi. Tell us a little bit about the importance of science and technology and integrating those ideas into what we do here at the forum. Sure, I'd love to. So uh, our participants at World Economic Forum meetings, uh, leaders from business and government, they're coming together primarily to understand the major uh, transformations that are happening in their industries and uh, in their policy fields, and they're looking to understand global challenges and what can be done. And I would argue that science is key to all of the above. So if we want to understand why uh, we have certain challenges, and then try to move to what could possible solutions be, uh, we need to look to uh, the scientific uh, approaches that are out there in terms of how to a- ask a good question and then also understand where the research is today uh, and how we could possibly deal with some of these big issues. Right. So, and one of the best ways, of course, to understand this stuff is to, actually ha- to have actual practical learning experiences, interactions with, with both the scientists themselves and with the technology. And that's, that's what we did in, uh, in Dalian in China. Can you tell us a bit about the was it Robotics in Action? That's right. Robots in Action was the name of the uh, the exhibition. It was the first time we did uh, a large robotics exhibition like this. And whereas you know there's science uh, for solutions, I'd say there's also science is about stimulation and, and inspiration. And so hopefully showing people uh, a vision of how the future could be different from today. And so that was one of the starting points for putting together this exhibition. Most of our participants know that there's something happening with robots in the world. Uh, you come across so much media the last few years about how robots might take our jobs and how uh, AI is going to get the best of us one day. Uh, we wanted to help provide uh, another narrative on how robots might be changing our lives. So in the past, I, I think the, the knowledge about robotics for most of our participants is coming from either uh, Hollywood films where we see uh, you know Terminator visions of, of the future or their experience actually working in uh, large industrial settings where you have very big automated systems factories and the like where you've got hundreds of robots doing simple tasks yeah exactly and they're moving very fast they're dangerous to work around um, and they're hard to program but uh, we are moving into another period but there's quite a gap between the industrial robots we've seen today and the imaginings of, of Hollywood of, of the distant future. And I think what we're moving into now is a period in which we will see service robots that are 
rolling, crawling, and flying out of the factories and into our lives, into our schools, our hospitals, our homes, and taking on roles that we never thought a robot could do. So we started this, this journey uh, on understanding this new robotics revolution by thinking about robots as potential teammates, heroes, and companions. And we organized this exhibit to demonstrate very clearly how advances in technologies like sensors, the ability of, for a robot to know where it is in relationship to other objects and people, or ability, the ability of robots to, to fly about without uh, damaging the room it's in. We, we use those technologies to then demonstrate these, these points. Rodney Brooks is the founder of Rethink Robotics, a company that helps manufacturers meet the challenges of an agile economy with an integrated workforce, combining trainable robots with skilled labour. In manufacturing, we've now got robots that can be close to people. They don't have to be caged off from the rest of the environment. So people and robots can work together. Robots doing the dull, repetitive stuff and people doing the more dexterous, cognitive stuff. The challenges are really the industry understanding that a, a new technology is doing something different from the way the old industrial robots worked. And that it's okay for a robot to have software upgraded every few months. That's not been the tradition. And it's okay for a robot to make dynamic decisions to optimize its task in the middle of a process. As with all new technologies, there's need for new regulations. Um, the old regulations don't fit the new technologies. And so we have to figure out how to make sure the robots are safe, uh, interact well with people, and what the appropriate sorts of safeguards should be in place. I think people are generally aware that artificial intelligence and robotics is sort of a crossroads where we're now able to do a lot more than we were until fairly recently. So there's a lot of excitement and a little bit of fear on what that's going to bring. Uh, there was robots as heroes, yeah. robots as companions mm -hmm. and robots as collaborators yes and so the interviews that we have today we're going to be hearing from some of the heroes who are the, the robots that can uh, go into damaged areas and help rescue people we're going to hear from some of the, the robot collaborators who can make a future where robots and humans work together in a very positive ways come much quicker and then robots as teammates where they understand a lot more about the environment around us. Robots as, as, as teammates or collaborators is about the next generation of robots that are coming out of an industrial setting to work closer with people, um, to be able to assist us in our homes, in our offices, in our schools, in our hospitals, in, in ways that we haven't seen before. And so examples of like Baxter and Ballbot mm -hmm. um, show this kind of mobility and uh, ability to understand the environment that they're in. To describe this robot, he had uh, arms and a face. Actually, the face was an iPad. And uh, the face had um, uh, expressions, just like, just like a person, happy, sad, a mm -hmm. bit confused. Uh, <laughs> and uh, developed by Rethink Robotics. So I'm with Alan Lee, who's with Rethink Robotics, and... Uh, uh, Alan's going to talk to us a little bit about Baxter, which is a two-armed uh, red robot, which has a what looks like an iPad for a face. Alan, tell us about Baxter. Okay, Baxter is uh, it's a new concept in the robot space. 
we call ourselves collaborative robot, mm-hmm. which ultimately, you know, we ourselves are positioning ourselves as a smart collaborative robot because, first of all, it can be worked along with people. Conventional robot, you need a cage, you need a box, you need a cage to prevent people touching it or accessing it, i.e. preventing damages or you getting hurt. But here, it is very safe, you know, next to it. You can, and, uh, uh, you, you, can, can you can stop his arms or stop, push him uh, or yeah, bruise him. Technology, uh, you know, for sensing, it can either sensing the target and it can also sense, you know, preventing obstacles like, you know, if in case there's a human blocking it. So I'm just looking at Baxter, what, what he's doing. He's got two arms and he's, right. he's picking up cards and he's putting them in, in pre-specified locations yes. and doing, doing particular tasks. There's also these expressions on the paper here, neutral, concentrating, <laughs> confused. Does he recognize... Yes. The, um, the, the so-called iPad you mentioned yeah. actually denotes of six faces. So if it's on a normal circumstance where operation is uh, decent and uh, healthy, then you have a neutral face. Of course, if it experiences trouble, etc., then it eventually stop and provide a sad face. So people working along with it, or maybe the technician, then understand you know what's wrong with it. You know, you know by looking at the facial expression. So, so it's about humanizing the technical interface. Exactly, exactly. Bullbot is an amazing robot that travels around on a single ball about 12 inches in diameter, something like that balances on a single ball and yet it's six foot six high yellow bright yellow like a pillar box mailbox and travels around the room balancing on this single ball very accurate movement i think it was developed it was developed as an experiment now they're working to develop some actual practical uses for this right yeah for example with with uh, aging populations uh, a big concern in, in many countries mm. we're often wondering how are we going to be able to care for so many elderly and assist them to continue living on their own independently for as long as possible and so one of the ideas is that we could design robots that could help so ballbot is one of those where its ability to move around a room in a very agile way uh, could be great for helping to say lead an elderly person um, through their home helping them sort of as a, a walker would preventing them from falls. This is Professor Ralph Hollis who actually developed Ballbot. Ballbot, uh, it's a robot that balances on a single spherical wheel. Its person size is skinny uh, and tall, and uh, it's tall enough to look you in the eye and interact with you physically. Uh, For example, uh, in guiding a person from place to place, or cooperatively carrying an object that's too large and bulky for a single person to carry and so forth like that. It's a very uh, compliant motion and you're looking at the world's first ballbot. We've developed this over 10 years now, but now around the world many people are building ballbots and some are actually being used commercially as well. Most of the robots that you see uh, are very uh, low to the ground. Uh, maybe half a meter high, uh, roaming around, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, But what if you want to make a robot tall enough to interact with a person? And you have, with conventional robot, wheels, three or four wheels. So if it's tall and slender uh, and you accelerate fast, it's going to tip over, right? Uh, Or if you go on a ramp, it can get unstable and tip over that way. 
so uh, we decided to, uh, and, and so these robots have a very wide base and a very heavy base. They put all the batteries in the bottom, for example. When you have a wide base and a tall robot, it can no longer get around cluttered environments that are typical of human environments, you know, like your bedroom or your, or your house. Or, you know, it has to be more maneuverable. So we boiled down from three or four wheels down to a single wheel, and that wheel had to be a sphere. So uh, that's why we call it ball bot. It's balancing on, on a ball, and uh, it's omnidirectional. So it can immediately move in any direction. Uh, it doesn't have to turn first. It can move sideways, backwards, what have you. The other unique feature is that it's very compliant. So pushing on the robot body will gently cause it to move away. Uh, and if it runs into something, it's very gentle. It'll produce almost no force and so forth. So a lot of advantages we feel to this technology. Uh, we do have a uh, company that we licensed this technology to that is using it commercially uh, to do inventory management in large big box stores. Uh, so uh, uh, these robots can go up and down the aisles of a store at night taking video of the shelves. And uh, if they run into a person or run into a shopping cart or this or that, they're very compliant. It's not a big deal and they can plan around that. So that's one application that's currently going forth right now. Uh, another, I think, is, is care of elderly or uh, uh, people maybe that need some assistance uh, in the home or in a public space, uh, helping them move from place to place, uh, fetching and carrying objects, uh, that sort of thing. The beneficial effects of, of uh, intelligent robots are tremendous, and we need them because we're all getting old and uh, uh, we need additional care. There are not enough caretakers in the world to take care of people, uh, but machines can help in that. They can't replace people, but they can help out in that. They can extend a person's uh, stay in a regular home environment, for example, before they go into a, a, a nursing home, for example, and so forth. I think this uh, fear of AI and so forth is totally overblown, that it's not gonna happen. Uh, it's not worth worrying about at least for a long, long time. So on the um, anthrotronics and the ability to read your mind with a, mm -hmm. with a, with a, with a John McEnroe-style headband, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> uh, why is that a technology that's worth highlighting? Well, I was really excited about this uh, display in particular because we brought together two different companies, Anthrotronics and Interaxion, uh, which are both working at the forefront of new interfaces, so how we interact with our machines. And what was exciting about this is it really transported our participants to a future in which it's not about screens and keyboards and, and mice, but rather you can put on a glove and manipulate a robotic arm just by moving your finger. And the cool thing about the Muse headband, which we added in on top of that, was that it, it was giving live feedback to the robot about your focus, about where your mind was while you were operating it. So this kind of like moves us past this idea of we command and control our machines into a future in which our machines know something rather intimate about us actually and can adapt how sort of difficult they are or flexible they are to work better with us as a team. So this is looking towards the future where actually you don't have a device in your pocket you have a device in your, uh, an implant in your brain, 
and that implant is feeding information directly as per your preferences mm. into your information circuits and you feed back to it and distribute information that way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's possible. The sort of brain implants and things like this are still science fiction for now. Of course, there's some really interesting research happening where uh, people who have lost the use of their limbs can manipulate a robotic arm with a brain implant. But in terms of a consumer-ready type of, of, of technology, this headband that picks up brain activity is, is a pretty cool development. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really about a future where it's not just smart devices that you carry around with you or might be embedded in your clothing, but it's just a sort of ubiquitous sensors that can pick up what you need so the machines are also reacting to you. Ariel Garten is the co-founder and CEO of Interaxon Incorporated, makers of Muse, a brain-sensing headband. So Muse actually tracks your brain activity in real time. It's a clinical-grade EEG with sensors on the forehead and behind the ears, slips on just like a pair of glasses, and then actually sends your brain activity to your smartphone or tablet. From there, a broad range of applications is possible. Here at the World Economic Forum, we have two different installations that we're doing. One is with Anthrotronics, where you can use your cognitive load to modulate the reaction of a robotic arm. The other one is actually a meditation experience. So Dr. Dean Ornish is guiding an entire group through a meditation while everyone's wearing Muse. And Muse lets you actually hear the sound of your own mind while you meditate. So you know when your mind is wandering and when you're in a state of clear, meditative focused attention. So this kind of technology has a broad range of applications, both today and in the future. The applications that it's best at today are things that help you understand a part of yourself, let you know, for example, when you're attending, when your mind is wandering, when your cognitive load is maxed. In the future, this kind of technology is going to let technology know something about you, so your devices can know when you're attending and then change the level of interaction. You will ultimately be able to control things with your mind, though that's actually less interesting than technology being able to understand and subtly change so you don't need to control anything, but so technology supports you. There are also lots of applications in the healthcare space. We have over 108 different research institutions that use Muse. Mayo Clinic is using it for stress reduction with cancer care patients, and they're studying the decrease in recovery times when you're able to meditate and reduce your stress. Um, There's research in ADHD, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autism, epilepsy, tinnitus, and more. So with a device like this, you can actually track brain activity during in real time, and then ultimately, hopefully, identify biomarkers and neuromarkers of disease and track the progress of a disease. It's just four channels, so it's it's not as uh, full spectrum as a 128 electrode device, but it can give you real-time information and be used in situations like this, which current clinical technology cannot do. So if we look at a far, far future world in which devices like this are part of our daily lives, and that will happen, this is going to be part of the sensor suite. So you'll have sensors that track your steps, that track your sleep, that track the position of your cell phone, and sensors that track your brain. And it will know when you are, for example, reading and the lighting in the room can get brighter so that it can accommodate your reading. It will know that you've fallen asleep and the lights will turn off and maybe your air conditioner will change in your house based on the fact that it knows you've fallen asleep. It will know that you are 
trying to learn something and that your attention has wandered. And so it may change the learning environment to bring your attention back to it and increase your level of engagement. It'll know when information has spiked your interest and it'll also know when you have created a cognitive error. There's a simple signal called the um, ERN, error-related negativity, that happens when you make an error, you detect an error in the real world. And so if this is a you know, robotic um, uh, machine-based system that uh, you're trying to do a task with, it's really important that it's noticed an error. If this is you checking over your homework or your kid's homework, it's also equally important that you know you've made an error or the system detects an error and you don't yet. Uh, one of the applications that we're very interested in is meditation because it's one of the things that's really um, useful right now. And so there's lots of research that demonstrates the benefits of meditation to help people improve their cognitive function, decrease their stress, improve their productivity, improve their ability to be present in daily life and enjoy their life more fully. Um, however, most people find meditation really difficult. With a device like this, it actually lets you know when you're in that state of focused attention, when you're meditating, and when your mind is wandering. It gives you real-time feedback to come back to that state of focused attention. And so it makes starting meditation, which for most people is quite difficult because you don't know what your brain is doing, makes it easy and it makes it real. So as with every technological innovation, there are benefits and there are potential negatives. And it's really up to us, both as the creators of technology and humanity as the employers and utilizers of this technology, to create sets of standards and guidelines to ensure that technology is always used for good and not for ill. I created an organization called the Center for Responsible Brainwave Technologies, which creates a set of standards around privacy, safety, efficacy, transparency, and agency to ensure that in the creation of brainwave technology tools, everybody's always using them appropriately and effectively. Jack Weiss is the founder of Anthrotronics, an engineering research and development company that produces human-centered technology. He's introducing a brand new glove, and it's not just any glove. And what we have here is one of our data gloves, and we call this a new glove. And the data glove has sensors in the finger and the back of the hand, and some of our other gloves have sensors in all the fingers. But today what we're doing is using these sensors in the finger to drive the robotic manipulator arm. So when your finger motions um, are activated, it controls the individual joint angles of the robotic manipulator arm and your hand orientation controls the base orientation of the arm. And so what we're practicing doing is we're trying to touch the tip of the robotic manipulator arm to that squishy uh, brain that's on the table. In addition to that, the operator has the Muse headband on, which Ariel will speak to, and the Muse headband is detecting EEG. And so the software we have is taking that EEG data and detecting cognitive load and then slowing down the arm if you experience higher cognitive load. And that higher cognitive load can be induced in a number of ways. Uh, one way is to count the blinking lights while you're driving the robotic manipulator arm. And another way would be to uh, recall things in your mind, like recall uh, cities near you or countries on Earth, things like that. So we actually have three main pieces of technology interacting here. We have the robotic manipulator arm, which is one that you can purchase off the internet. We have the glove technology that we actually make, and the glove technology has sensors in the finger, and each sensor is a three-axis accelerometer, a three-axis gyroscope, and a three-axis compass. And this sensor data is what we're using to drive the manipulator arm. The third component of technology is the Muse headband, and that's being used to detect cognitive load. 
so that we can detect the operator's cognitive load while they're driving the ro robotic manipulator arm. So the idea is that when their cognitive load increases too much, the robot arm will slow down and make it easier to drive. So some practical applications are the uh, sensors in the glove allow operators who are wearing gloves, for example, to be able to operate robotic assets with just their hand movements. So it's a gestural interface so that you could drive robotic vehicles or robotic manipulator arms like this one using very intuitive hand gestures. Um, so the actual motion of your fingers and the orientation of your hand would be used to drive the robotic vehicle. And then the application of the EEG component would be to detect the cognitive workload of the operator. And if the cognitive workload is increasing too high, the system could detect that and then slow down the robotic arm like we're doing today or make a safer condition as a mitigation to increase cognitive workload. One of the fundamental ideas is to make technology interact with uh, humans in a much more natural way. And one of those ways is through gesture. And another natural way is for the technology to understand the cognitive state of the operator. And that makes technology much more intuitive and natural to work with. When humans interact with other humans and even dogs, you expect a certain level of um, intelligence on your cognitive state and a certain level of understanding of your um, gestures and your speech. When humans interact with technology, we're just starting to get there with speech recognition, but technology understanding cognitive state or recognizing the gestures that you use with your hands and understanding what that means I think is, uh, is going to make technology much more intuitive to use and interact with. That, however, is very different from the other kind of robotics that were on display. Right. Because they were all very much about uh, command and control items. Right. So the, the, the different kind of robots that we had, in the flying drones and, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and the, uh, a collaborative robot. Yeah. Should we listen to the interview with Patrick Tevos, who invented the flyability gimbal? Yeah, sure. Uh, we're um, a team of researchers trying to solve the biggest problem of flying robotics, which is how can we get a robot to fly in places where collisions cannot be avoided, in confined spaces, in complex spaces. Uh, the original motivation was about search and rescue, uh, notably looking at the, at the Fukushima disaster where robots were not very efficient at getting inside because ground robots would get stuck because there was clutters, there were staircases, and flying robots could not access because there were too many obstacles. So getting an inspiration from insects and about how insects were able to at the same time avoid some collisions but also being able to resist collisions once they occurred, um, we developed this, this robot called Gimbal and uh, founded the company Flyability to, to bring it to market. With this robot we're able to bring a new layer of safety and of accessibility to drones. It's the first robot that can access places which are confined, which are indoors, which are complex and where no other robot can access. Uh, it's also uh, one of the safest flying robots in the world in the sense that it can be flown very close to people, it can, people can touch it in flight and it will not uh, hurt them. Uh, it will not, uh, the people will not risk you know, hurting themselves on the rotating propellers and as it's very light, about 500 grams, uh, the, the risks are very, very low for, for, for people. So it's opening a lot of new applications for, for flying robotics in general. Uh, we're working with uh, industrial inspection specialists to, to go inside power plants, inside uh, um, uh, tanks, um, um, or as well under bridges where you have structures that need inspection and that's 
previously required humans to go and climb up there, which was very dangerous and time-consuming. Uh, we're also working with search and rescue and uh, firefighters uh, who need to be able to go inside a building from the outside and quickly assess the situation without having to put the, the life of rescuers or, or firefighters at risk. So what's interesting about this, uh, this drone is it's really it's built to improve the state of the world through, through accessing emergency places, through safe flying. Why was it that, uh, that you invited Patrick to bring his toys to, to a forum meeting? In the last few years, drones, I think, have gotten kind of a bad reputation. You know, we often think about predator military drones flying high over uh, war zones and, and dropping bombs potentially on off target. Uh, and so this has been uh, something that a lot of people in this, in this area have been concerned about since the potential for drones to do good in the world is huge. So the United Arab Emirates uh, held a competition in 2015 called Drones for Good, in which they uh, inspired uh, designers from around the world to put forward their different projects as what would be the best showcase of drones doing good. And so Patrick uh, Tevos and his group Flyability won that competition for the gimbal, which is a four-rotor drone encased in a, a metal cage and is what they call collision tolerant. So it can hit walls, it can hit floors, it can hit people, and it doesn't cause any damage. It can keep going. And the use for this is really, as he, as he mentions, to be able to explore areas where uh, a person would be much too slow or it would be much too dangerous to send a person in there. So this is really where we start thinking about robots as heroes and how could our different robotics be deployed in a humanitarian context uh, to react, for example, in a Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster or uh, in a collapsed building where you wouldn't want to send uh, rescue workers, but we need to get sort of eyes on the ground quickly to identify survivors and identify potential to avert further disaster. Uh, so that's how that, that machine could be useful. Then we have those robots that can analyze our faces and understand how, how we feel. Uh, there are a couple of those yeah, on display right. there. So we had one exhibit from Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, which featured a virtual agent named Zara. This is just a sort of animated character on a screen. Um, but the technology running in the background behind Zara is something called uh, a multimodal computer program. So it's picking up all these different data points from you as you speak to it, just from using a simple microphone and webcam on a laptop. So it's, it's watching your face, it's, it's seeing how your eyebrows move, how you're, are you smiling or are you frowning? Do you look confused? Do you look happy? Um, are you engaged? Are you leaning forward? Or have you sort of disengaged and are you leaning back? Uh, it also measures the sort of tone of your voice and your hesitation and the responses you're giving to its questions. So this, this kind of sensitivity to our behavior and the machine's ability to equate that with certain emotional states is allowing our computers, our machines, to understand us and work with us in ways that have never been possible before. So some of the applications, of, of course, people are thinking about deploying automated uh, you know, therapists, if you will, to help diagnose people who might have 
post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. Or depression. Or depression, many di different cases that you could see this being used. Our uh, exhibit was, it was a, kind of a lighthearted version of this, where we knew people didn't have much time to converse with this machine. So we just asked a few questions, and in the background had the program running a Myers-Briggs personality assessment. Right. So after a quick conversation with Zara, you would get uh, a little bit of feedback on how you are as, a, as an extrovert or an introvert, and... Um, whether she found you an interesting person to converse. It's like a horoscope. Uh, yeah, horoscope <laughs> exactly. In, so there's the fairground. You can see there's a, a wide range of applications that go from the more serious to the, the more entertaining. But uh, we wanted to showcase that this technology is is moving fast and uh, quite exciting. There was another exhibit that is similar uh, in that it also uses this virtual agent, which is just a, sort of a character. Uh, on the screen that uh, that makes you feel that you are interacting with a real person as opposed to just speaking to a, a machine. And this was uh, Alex, the uh, peer educator. And this was a, a really interesting project from uh, Carnegie Mellon University, which has been used to help help in educational environments in schools or in, in, in tutoring centers for kids with learning disabilities. Or, or, or children who have just fallen behind or not adapted to the classroom, very, uh, classroom setting very well. So Alex is a child and is designed to carry out teaching lessons with the same knowledge that a teacher would have, but because the, the real uh, human child student is interacting with a virtual child, they feel like they're with a peer. And this allows them to open up and listen and engage with the content in a way that isn't possible for them in a classroom setting with a bunch of other kids and an adult teacher at the front of the room. So this is opening up whole new frontiers for how we educate, not just kids, but you could think about companies who are, are looking to reskill employees or somebody who's been sort of needs to have a career change and get um, some new new skills working with a virtual peer who can who can give you practical advice yeah, and give and, you tips and, and read where you are mm -hmm. in that lesson you know they can do an assessment of is is this sinking in or have i uh, you know have i totally <laughs> gone over their head and how can i readjust what i'm saying to actually help them learn Great. And that's all from this week's audio program from the World Economic Forum. I've been uh, joined by David Glacker. Thanks, David, for coming and explaining all of that about robot. <laughs> sure, my pleasure. <laughs> a lot of fun. And you can hear all of our episodes on SoundCloud or on agenda.weforum.org slash podcast. My name's Mike Hanley. This is David. Until next time, take care. Bye.